red-coated British troops lined one side of a public square. Across from them, an angry crowd of French and Irish Canadians, shouting at the soldiers to go home, back to the garrison. It was late May, 1832, and the rain was pelting down. So too was the occasional rock hurled by a rowdy member of the crowd. That's why the troops were there, to try to keep the peace so that voters in Montreal could reach the polls to vote. Rival gangs, each supporting a different candidate, had been harassing each other for weeks. That's how long the election had already been going on. Back in 1832, elections could last week after week. And on every day of this election, there had been violence. Packs of men threw rocks at each other. They smashed shop windows. This day, they also aimed at the troops. Lieutenant Colonel McIntosh, the officer in charge, knew this could get ugly. The very fact that his troops had been called out was bound to anger one side or the other. But when local magistrates officially requested help from the local garrison, well, there was nothing for it but to step in. The troops took up a position on the streets to restore order. McIntosh hoped that their mere presence would be enough to calm the crowd. But as the barrage of stones grew worse, he decided that enough was enough. He shouted an instruction for the soldiers to load their weapons. The butt of their muskets shook the cobblestones. The soldiers poured in first powder, and then the lead ball, and then more powder. The crowd seemed to calm slightly, but only for a moment. Again, they hurled rocks and taunted their adversaries. Lieutenant McIntosh shouted for them to disperse. According to McIntosh, the crowd ignored him, and that's why he gave the fatal order. Man by man, one at a time, each soldier unloaded their musket upon the crowd. From this day onward, this ground would become known as the Street of Blood. Hello, and welcome to 1867 and All That, Episode 2, Street of Blood. Canada has a fascinating political history full of bizarre events, unique characters, and rowdy debates over ideas that still shape our politics today. In this series, we're going to uncover the essential stories that you absolutely need to know about Canada's political origins. At the centre is 1867 and the story of Confederation, the one we're all supposed to know, about the joining together of separate colonies to create a country called the Dominion of Canada. But some of the most fascinating parts of our political history fall all around this date. 1867 was nestled in between several decades of tumultuous, violent, and fraught conflict about what kind of country Canada will become. This is the all that of 1867 and all that. Over the course of this podcast series, we'll tell the story of responsible government, Canada's own chapter in the history of democracy, and not the one but two Métis rebellions, or according to others, resistance movements, led by Louis Riel against Canadian expansion. We'll explore why Prince Edward Island has such a super weird history, quite different from most other parts of the country. We'll also explore the never more than now relevant topic of the treaties signed between the new Canadian government and Indigenous peoples on the Western Plains. And while we're at it, we'll look to why British Columbia almost completely refused to sign treaties with Indigenous peoples. In season one, though, our focus is on two big stories. The first is the rebellions of 1837 and 1838, when thousands of Canadians took up arms to overthrow constituted authority, 
and many thousands more picked up their own weapons to fight so that Canada could remain a part of the British Empire. And the second story, the second half of season one, recounts what happened in the aftermath of rebellion, the long drawn out battle in the 1840s over this thing called responsible government. We'll finish in the tumultuous year of 1849. It's really my favorite year of Canadian history. This is when Tory mobs in Montreal were so angry with what the Canadian government had done that they burnt down Parliament. Before we can even think about 1867, we really need to get a handle on what happened in the rebellions and the fight over responsible government. And that's why we began on the Street of Blood in May of 1832. Because the rebellions of 1837 and 1838 didn't just flare up out of nowhere. A series of people and events have been gathering the kindling of political discontent for years. All they needed was the right spark. First, let's figure out where we are. Montreal in 1832 was not part of the Canada that we know today. In fact, only parts of what we now think of as Canada were even called Canada in the 1830s. Many more parts, most of the north, almost all of the west, were still largely indigenous homelands. Montreal, what was then called Lower Canada, that is, the Canadian colony on the lower part of the St. Lawrence and Great Lakes River system. It was the sister colony to Upper Canada, the newer and mostly English-speaking colony that was situated on the upper portions of that river system. And this reference to the river wasn't just a quaint naming system. Waterways were the highways of the age. This is how people and goods traveled. Yes, there were some primitive roads, but these bumpy, mud-caked tracks could as easily eat a carriage as help it to pass on to its destination. There were a couple of very short little railways built in the 1830s, but the age of rail was barely out of the womb, a dream of budding entrepreneurs not to be realized for another 20 years. To the east of the Canadas were the four other colonies of British North America, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island, and Newfoundland, conveniently named after all the provinces which they now are today. Oriented towards the ocean to trade with Britain and the West Indies, to harvesting lumber and fish and other goods, only some in these colonies saw a long-term connection between their Atlantic world and the more populous Canadas with their farming settlements along the St. Lawrence and the Great Lakes. We're starting our story in the 1830s, and like any history, this is an arbitrary beginning. So before we move forward, we need for a moment to think back, because two profound historical events from the previous century, the 18th century, cast their shadows over the Canada of the 1830s. The first of these was, of course, the conquest of New France. In the massive, multi-continent spanning Seven Years' War, between 1756 and 1763, Great Britain and France had faced off against each other. And they weren't alone. The Prussians and Russians, the Spanish and the Austro-Hungarian Empire had all been part of the conflict. The North American battles were, in some ways, only minor skirmishes in a struggle whose most significant battles happened elsewhere. But the end result was that Britain captured and retained almost the entirety of France's possessions in North America after the final peace treaty. For the Lower Canadians in the 1830s, this was something like the Second World War is for us today, an earth-shattering event from the distant but still relatively recent past. 
Although a few were alive who had lived through those events themselves, many people's parents and grandparents would have remembered life before and after the conquest. But, and here's where my Second World War analogy breaks down, in the case of the French Canadians, they lost that war. Or at least their mother country, France, lost that war on their behalf. And so life for les Canadiens in the war's aftermath was radically altered. They were torn asunder from their motherland, ruled by a foreign power, left uncertain of their future. Britain took control of a colony that was largely populated by French Catholics at a time when Catholics could not even hold public office in England. Back in the lead-up to the war, the British had exiled an entire population of French Catholics, the Acadians, from their North American homes. The question of the fate of French Canadians was not going to go away, and by the 1830s it was still a pressing issue. One of the reasons the conquest still mattered and the fate of French Canadians still hung so much in the balance was because of the other giant conflict of the 18th century that overshadowed Lower Canada, the American Revolution. Not much more than a decade after the conquest, after the end of the Seven Years' War, Britain went to war with its rebellious 13 colonies in North America and lost. At the height of its global power, Britain lost much of its first empire in North America. Everyone knows that the United States of America was born in the American Revolution. But one of the great cliches of Canadian history is that the American Revolution didn't just create one country, it created two. For Canada was as much a creation of the Revolution as was the United States. Britain didn't lose all of its colonies in North America. The sparsely populated very northeastern colonies, the current-day Canadian maritime provinces, had not rebelled. Nor had the French Canadians. Even though an American invasion in 1775 had hoped to inspire a local uprising. And by the way, this won't be the end of this American hope that all that was needed to win over Canadians to join their cause was a nice little invasion and the locals would rapturously rise up to throw off the British yoke. But I'm getting ahead of myself there. The main point is that in the 1830s, what was left of British North America was shaped by the American Revolution. It was a creation of it the lingering remnants of colonies that had remained loyal. And as we'll see, the question of loyalty is going to matter to Canadian politics. And there was also the fact of the conquest of the large population of French Catholics who, after the American Revolution, now made up a large proportion of all of British North America. Before the Revolution, they were but a tiny fraction of a vastly more numerous British America. It's almost certain that without an American Revolution, they would have been swamped by English-speaking immigrants and a larger series of British colonies. But after the Revolution, in what was then the smaller northern version of British North America, French Catholics were a substantial demographic force. They weren't going to go anywhere, and they were determined to survive. And they continued to matter collectively in the 1830s, insisting on their rights, their language, their institutions. And the continuing battles over just what this meant in practice are what we see in physical form on the streets of Montreal in May of 1832. Louis-Joseph Papineau was a passionate, charming, indecisive dandy. With his neat black suits and white frills and black necktie, his unruly hair always quaffed just so, seemingly about to tip over, 
He was the epitome of bourgeois style and seriousness. His people saw in him the hopes of their survival, an expression of their determined insistence to continue in their ways as a people, to be different, to be themselves. Although Papineau wasn't a candidate that day in May of 1832, he was everywhere, both his spirit and his vision. Because Papineau was the head of the Patriot Party, the French party, in the Lower Canadian Parliament. And Papineau and the Patriot had been engaged for years in a seemingly never-ending parliamentary war with their rivals in the English party and with a long list of British governors. Almost as soon as the Lower Canadian Assembly first began its meetings way back in 1792, members of the Assembly divided on the grounds of religion and national origin, Protestant Catholic and French English. There were debates about the use of French and English in the Assembly, about how education should be handled and whether this would lead to assimilation, about how funds should be raised by land taxes as the business-focused, mostly English-speaking merchants wanted, or by tariffs on imports, as the land-holding French Canadians wanted. Political parties were only loosely developed in this period and often vilified, but nonetheless a Canadian party emerged to speak in favour of the power of the assembly and, de facto, the French-Canadian majority of that assembly. By 1822, many in the English-speaking minority had had enough of not being able to control the assembly, and a plan was concocted to force a union between Upper and Lower Canada. The British wanted to do this for various reasons, but chiefly because they had become frustrated with French Catholic control of the assembly in Lower Canada. A single united colony with the right constitution skewed in favour of the English might help to make the new assembly less of an obstacle. A united colony could diminish the power of les Canadiens, the French. The Canadiens reacted with alarm, as did actually the upper Canadians, who had no desire to lose their independence and be thrust back in with the lower Canadians. Lower Canada sent two delegates to London with petitions against the Union, signed by 60,000 individuals, almost 15% of the colony. At the head of this delegation was Louis-Joseph Papineau. Papineau was a complicated figure a spokesman for liberalism, for democratic rights, and yet one who hoped to use that liberalism for conservative ends, to further enshrine the rural, feudal, and Catholic life that he saw as the essence of his people. He was a seigneur, that is, one of the feudal lords who held title to a large estate on which the French habitants or peasants farmed and held lands, owing him various duties and payments. This was the common way that land had been held in New France and the English had allowed for this form of landholding to continue after the conquest, at least in those areas mostly settled by the French. But this was a constant tension, and most English-speaking settlers wanted to expand freehold tenure to build up a market for land. Most seigneuries had actually been taken over by British landholders, but a minority were still held by the French, and in fact Papineau's own father had purchased his seigneury, so it hadn't been in his family long either. Papineau had entered the assembly as a young man way back in 1808 and had steadily grown in influence. The fight against the union of the colonies worked in 1822. They would not be rejoined, not yet. And Papineau returned to his homeland as the leading spokesman for his people. Over the course of the 1820s and into the 1830s, Papineau and other reformers grew more strident in their demands for political reform. They stopped calling themselves the Canadian Party 
and instead called themselves the Patriot. They threatened to shut down government if they did not get what they wanted. So what is it that they wanted? What was at stake for the Patriot and Papineau and the crowds on the street in 1832? Okay, here's where we need to take a step sideways. Because the Patriot arguments of the 1830s were wrapped up in their concerns for their collective identity and survival, and that much I think is relatively easy to understand. But the Patriot were also upset about the system of government, about the constitution, that is, the rules by which Lower Canada was governed. And while this system has a lot of similarities to our own, it was also just different. So take two steps to the side and let's have a little early 19th century Canadian civics lesson. People took up arms to defend and to overthrow their system of government, so we had better figure out how that system worked in the first place. At the very top was the governor. Appointed by officials in Britain, the governor played the role in the colony of the sovereign, the monarch's envoy, though he was himself actually a representative of the British government and often at the mercy of decisions back in the United Kingdom. He followed their orders. At a time when even in England the king was still seen to play a somewhat active role in politics, the governor could and did play a direct role in guiding policy. In other words, the governor didn't play the role of a completely hands-off constitutional monarch, far from it. Now under the governor were what you might think of as two houses of parliament, something like the House of Commons and the Senate today, though they weren't called that because that would be too easy. First was the Legislative Council a body appointed for life at the discretion of the governor. The Legislative Council was meant to play the role of aristocratic tradition and authority, like the House of Lords in England, though this was much harder to do in the New World than in the Old. They wielded power, though Papineau and other reformers were upset that they did so. They could, and often did, block bills that were passed by the other main body, the Legislative Assembly. The assembly was akin to our modern-day House of Commons. Its representatives were voted in by electors, but there were some key differences, and the assembly's powers were more limited than our House of Commons. There also was not yet the equivalent position of a prime minister. Instead, the speaker tended to take up the main role of leading in the assembly. The system was meant to be democratic, but not too much so. Members of the assembly were elected by the people of Lower Canada, or at least the property holders. When the system was first established back in 1791, the British were keen to have a representative system of government. But the one lesson they had learned from the American Revolution was that overly democratic assemblies could radically challenge their authority. So the British emphasized the importance of what was called the balanced constitution. That is, there was a body for the people, the assembly, a body for established authority, the legislative council, and a role for the representative of the crown, the governor. According to this version of democracy, the balanced constitution, the interests of all were best met by a proper weighing of these different forces. The governor then chose several individuals to serve on an executive council. This was the equivalent of a modern day cabinet, our executive. But there are a few big differences, and in fact, people are going to fight over these differences for the next several decades. That's the fight for responsible government that we'll get to in the second half of season one. One difference was that the governor only needed to consult the executive council. He wasn't obliged to follow their advice. And two, although members of this executive council might also sit in the assembly, 
They didn't have to. In fact, the composition of the executive did not need to match the composition of forces in the assembly. In other words, one group might have won an election and hold the most seats in the assembly, but they would not necessarily control a majority on the executive. And if you're thinking here about Papineau and the Patra, yes, you would be right to do so, because they control the assembly, but not the executive council, nor the legislative council for that matter. The governor might want, and frankly often did want, to make sure that the executive represented different interests in the colony. But there was a general dislike of what was called party government. That is, the system we have now, where the executive, our cabinet, comes from whichever party has a majority of seats in our assembly, our House of Commons. Instead, governors wanted an executive of what they thought were the best and the brightest, representing all of the different interests in the colony. Okay, so there we have it. A governor at the top, advised by an executive council, kind of, but not really like a cabinet, a long-serving appointed legislative council, something like the Senate, but more powerful, and a legislative assembly, a fair bit like the modern-day House of Commons, but less powerful. The system was far from perfect. It was not at all democratic in the way that we think of democracy today. But remember, most countries in the world in the 1830s were not even remotely democratic. Revolutionaries across Europe in 1848 would fight just for the idea that they should have a constitution at all. The colonies in British North America were well ahead of the democratic curve. They had constitutions that provided representative government, and many men, with an emphasis on men, could realistically aspire to be property owners and voters at some point in their lives. If you count up the percentage of the population who could vote in an election in the Canadas and compare it to almost any other place on the planet at the same time, then by the standards of the 1830s, though not our own today, British North America had a healthy political system. But, and there is always a but, there were many people in the Canadas, especially in Lower Canada, who thought that the system needed reform, and Papineau and the Patriot were those who in Lower Canada were most upset and they kept getting elected to the assembly time and time again. What then did Papineau and the Patriot want? Okay, to vastly simplify, I would say they wanted two things, their identity and their liberty. Let's start with identity first. The Patriot were liberal nationalists of a kind that we find all across the European world at this time. They were spokespeople for the French Canadian nation this doesn't mean that they didn't reach beyond French Canadians. In fact, there were prominent English-speaking reformers amongst their number, as we're going to see. But this was a party of patriots, like other liberal nationalists, and they hoped that their liberal reforms could lift up the individual and the nation together. They stood for things like the freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, and they were increasingly secular and anti-clerical though this last point divided the Patriot with some feeling that their Roman Catholicism needed to be protected and cherished, especially against the dominant English Protestantism, which was everywhere about them in North America. So the Patriot were liberal reformers, but they wanted these reforms so that they could protect the French-Canadian nation. The masthead that ran on one of their papers, Le Canadien, puts it best, Nos institutions, notre langue et nos lois our institutions, our language, and our laws. The Patriot's other major concern, and the one which led to rebellion, centered on the question of liberty and on the Constitution. 
the Patriots didn't like the system of government and they wanted to change it. Now their main target was the Legislative Council. This body, filled with governor appointees who often did not support the Patriots' initiatives, had the power to disallow anything that the Assembly passed. This to the Patriot was anathema. To the Patriot, the people who occupied these posts were nothing but hangers-on. They were called the Chateau Clique, named after the governor's mansion in Quebec City. And the solution that the Patriot and Papineau urged again and again was to make the Legislative Council an elected body. That way, the Patriot could presumably control this body just as they did the Assembly. The chief tactic that the Patriot used to get what they wanted was their control over money. In order to get the money to pay his various appointees, essentially much of the colony's civil service, the governor needed to get approval from the assembly. And the Patriot used this power as a bargaining tool. Do what we want and you'll get your money. It also mattered that this was about appointments, about patronage, because the Patriot wanted to be able to give appointments to disperse patronage to the people of their choosing. So the one constant source of conflict between governors and the assembly all through this period was over these appointments, what was called the civil list. The question was, what would the governor give up at any one time to win the assembly's approval? For the British, however, giving in to many of the Patriot demands seemed like giving way to independence, to creating an independent French Republic in North America. And so the two sides faced off one against the other. By the early 1830s, the Patriot and the governor were locked in a seemingly never-ending battle over money, patronage, and the Constitution. That was the context in which a by-election was called for a seat in the Assembly, representing the West End of Montreal in 1832. Papineau and the Patriot had a cunning plan, and it was bound to upset their opponents in the English party. At this time, some ridings had more than one representative in the Assembly, and this was the case with Montreal's West End. Now, one of those seats was already filled by none other than Louis-Joseph Papineau. The other seat was usually held by a representative of the English party. But could the English party really represent all of the English-speaking population? Maybe the Patriots could make the claim too. In the early 1830s, Irish immigrants were streaming into the Canadas. And while many French Canadians were angry at the influx of immigrants, seeing them as a potential threat, Papineau and the Patriot also hoped to win the Irish to their cause. Could the Irish, especially the Catholic Irish, join with their Catholic counterparts, the French Canadians and the Patriot Party? This is exactly what Papineau hoped. Papineau and the Patriot turned to one of these men, to a young, fiery journalist named Daniel Tracy, to run for them in the election. Tracy had trained as a doctor, but on coming to Canada only a few years earlier, had become the editor of a partisan newspaper, The Vindicator. It didn't take long for Tracy to make some enemies. In fact, he had only just got out of jail. He wrote a series of columns in his paper attacking the government and calling for the total annihilation of the Legislative Council, that is, the home of the Chateau Clique, the appointed body that was a frequent target of Patriot criticism. The authorities did not take kindly to his overly opinionated journalism and labeled his and another man's writings potentially seditious. Tracy and the other men were put up on charges and jailed for more than a month. 
but far from being put off, they emerged from jail triumphant as political martyrs. Who better to run in the by-election of Montreal West than Daniel Tracy himself? Now, the election turned violent for many reasons, but none more so than by the very public manner in which it was held. In the 1830s, there was no such thing as a secret ballot where you discreetly marked your piece of paper behind a cardboard screen and slipped it unobtrusively into a box in front of a room of quiet, officious Elections Canada officials in the local rec centre. Not at all. In the 1830s, elections were public and rowdy. To vote, an elector had to show up at a polling station, step up onto the rostrum, usually a wooden stage built in a public place, and announce in a loud, clear voice for whom you were voting. As long as electors continued to show up to vote every 30 minutes, the polling station would stay open. Elections could last for weeks. Now, to say that this could go wrong would be to put it mildly. Obviously, one of the best ways to ensure that your candidate won was to prevent your opponent's supporters from reaching the polls in the first place. It helped to rent out a tavern, supply some energetic young men with liquor, rouse them with speeches of your own virtue and your opponent's evil doing, and then let nature take its course. Crowds could, and did, gather around the ballots, blocking the way. Local officials would hire special constables to try to keep the way clear, but both sides often complained that the constables themselves were partisan. The election we're talking about began on the 25th of April of 1832, and it was still going on almost a month later on the 21st of May, the day of the riot. On every day the polls were open, rival gangs clashed in the streets. Both sides did what they could to intimidate the other. By Sunday, 20th of May, several magistrates had had enough. The special constables weren't able to keep the peace. The garrison, they felt, needed to be called out to establish order around the polls. But in calling out the troops, violence was almost guaranteed. That's what set the scene for the clashes on the 21st of May, for the gathering of soldiers, the loading of muskets, and the shots fired on the ground. When the square finally emptied that day, three French Canadians lay dead on the ground. The shooting sparked outrage amongst Patriot supporters. It scarcely seemed to matter that Daniel Tracy actually won the election by three votes. To the Patriot, the attack of the guards had been nothing less than an assassination. Patriot magistrates had the officers arrested and pressed for murder charges. But a grand jury threw out all of the charges, angering the Patriot supporters even more. Then, someone overheard the governor approving of the fact that the charges had been dropped against Colonel McIntosh and his fellow officers. And the Patriot papers pounced. Why, they asked, must the governor, quote, compliment the murderers in a fashion most outrageous and contemptuous to the Canadian people? More warrants were issued by the magistrates who were Patriot supporters. Lieutenant McIntosh was quietly told that authorities couldn't guarantee that they could protect him anymore, and he ultimately fled to England to escape arrest again. The military gave orders that, for safety, soldiers in the garrison were only to go out walking in groups of six or eight for their own protection. As a precaution, the governor ordered more troops to the city. The Patriot Papers renamed the street where the shootings occurred the Street of Blood. Making matters worse, that summer the dreaded disease cholera arrived in the colony on ships of immigrants arriving from Ireland. Death ravaged the colony taking, among its victims, Daniel Tracy, who never took up his seat in the assembly. 
Only a few years earlier, another governor had described his job of trying to conciliate all the different interests in the colony as like sitting on a barrel of gunpowder. The election riot of 1832 was a giant spark flashing right beside that barrel. Everyone tensed, waiting for the explosion. It wasn't just the violence that mattered. In blaming the garrison, the British troops, the Pafayats had begun to target British authority itself. Up until now, it had been possible to look to Britain to rectify problems in the colony, to send a new and better governor, to modify the constitution, or to disallow an unpopular bill. What would happen, though, when reformers in Lower Canada began to see authority across the sea not as a source of a solution, but as the problem itself? That is what we're going to find out. Next week, we turn to Upper Canada in the same year, to 1832, because even as election gangs brawled on the streets of Montreal, a radical Canadian reformer in a red wig named William Lyon Mackenzie set sail for London. He wasn't happy with government in Upper Canada, and he hoped the Brits would fix it. Well, you can always hope. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, I'd appreciate it if you left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your podcasts. You can share about us on social media. I'd love it if you spread the word. Thanks. 1867 and All That is created, written, and narrated by me, Christopher Dummett, and produced by Jessica Clement with the generous support of Trent University. See you next time on 1867 and All That.